You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. I am joined by a guest that I've been looking forward to having. It's actually one of two guests, so consider this sort of a two-parter. Uh, this is Ricky of Rick and Ricky from Scottish Watches. Hey, Ricky. How are things going, Ariel? Good. Um, I'm in Los Angeles, and you are in Scotland. Actually, I don't know what part of Scotland you're actually in. I am just outside Glasgow. Isn't that like most of Scotland? Uh, you could say that. You could say that. Yeah. No, Glasgow and Edinburgh are the main focal point in Scotland. Just like you've got London, Manchester uh, down in England. So yeah, one of the, the sort of central hubs and the best place in Scotland if you're into wristwatches due to the number of boutiques and independent brands that we've got here. So Glasgow is a better city than Edinburgh Ooh, if you're a white person? That's not how you pronounce it. It's Glasgow. That's how you pronounce oh, it. Oh, Glasgow. And it's not Edinburgh or Edinburgh. It's Edinburgh. 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 There we go. Perfect. I, I lived on a street for 10 years called Edinburgh Avenue. You know that? Per- there you go. You yeah. have come fully aware. That's what I like about you. Are always prepared when I speak to you. It's great. But, uh, I, you know, there's that kind of ooh, that Scottish ooh, that just doesn't come naturally from someone in California like me. No. Like, okay, here's the thing. I grew up watching a lot of Mike Myers comedy. What do you feel about his Scottish accent? <sighs> Oh, it's not too bad. It's right? a good transition. It's a good transition between real Scots and Americanized Scots. So you guys can. It's like when James McAvoy or Gerald Butler comes across to the states and they've got that guttural vocal intent in their voice, but you can understand it. Or yeah. Ewan McGregor on Train Spotting or in Phantom Menace. You know, Scottish people that you can understand. Sean Connery, not so much, but the rest of the guys, you know, they were good, doing a good job of it. I mean, I, I, you know, I idolized him as a comedian and I never wanted to be like a foolish fan that was like really enjoying his caricature of, 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 you know, certain Scottish sound and it being a bad one. I just felt like that would have been, that would have been such bad taste, but at least it's a good accent. It um, was. Yeah. So you are part of a duo that does Scottish watches. It's actually a trio now. It's actually a trio. It's a trio now? Yes, we have three- a third. Okay, so I ha- you have to update me now. Okay, well let's we'll get to the trio in a moment. Um, you have been very prolific over the last. I don't even know how long it's been. It's been more than two years. Two and a half years now. Yeah. Two and a half years. Okay. Wow. And you you came on the scene, and I, I actually want to hear a little bit about what the Wad Pod- Watch podcasting scene was like when you started, and you just started doing a lot. You were you you are one of the most ambitious watch podcasting teams that I'm aware of. I think that I did the world's first watch podcast. We can talk about that a little bit later, but just talk a little bit about um, your program, what you do, your mission, what you're known for, and where people can find a little bit more about you. Yeah, so it started as a joke. It was a laugh and a giggle on Instagram. I wrote a comment way back 2018. I'd been to my first Red Bar event in Scotland. It only just started here in the UK. And I went along and I met a couple of people and we started talking on Instagram and I made a joke and a laugh saying that the guy I was speaking to at the time, his name was Rick, my name's Ricky, and I said, we should start a podcast, we could call it Wrist Action with a couple of dicks. 
And I thought that was mm. quite humorous and funny. He thought it was quite humorous and funny. <laughs> just so happened, a couple of days later, we were going to a store launch. As I said, Glasgow is an amazing place for different brands and boutiques. And we both turned up at this place. I didn't know what it looked like. It's Instagram. It's all wrist shots. You don't show your face. Walked into this room where there were all these lovely people, lovely watches out. And there was this bellowing voice in the corner. And I walked up and I was listening and I sat down and started chatting. Turned out to be Rick. And from there, the genesis of Scottish Watches and the podcast came to be. Launched at January 2019, right before SIHH. And I'd been to SIHH as a member of the public because they'd opened it up the previous year to normal folks like myself. Yeah, it was like the first time, right? Yeah, the Friday you could go along and I had rebooked again because to get from Scotland to Switzerland, it's like an hour and a half on a plane. It costs the equivalent of $100 for a return ticket to go there. Oh, that's nothing. Oh, and you just, and you know yourself, having been there, you walk out of Geneva Airport to Pal yeah. Expo. It's I mean, it's minutes. at the airport. It's, 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 it's at the airport. Yeah. For all, all intents and purposes, the airport is where the watch show is. <laughs> it is. And it's the same for what used to be the Geneva Motor Show, because I went to that as well, because it's so simple. People think it's yeah. a big, massive thing. And obviously in the States, it is to get there. But for us, walking the park, it's easier to get there than it is to get to London. So I went to that um, the, the previous year, and I was all hyped up to go again. And I said, well, let's start the podcast because there's all the news coming out, all the releases, and there'll be lots to talk about. I can go to the event, come back, and give you a man-on-the-street view from going to the show, not as press, but as a member of the public. And that enabled us to do two shows in the one week, which unfortunately and fortunately kick-started what we ended up doing. And we have continued to do two shows every week ever since, which is a mammoth amount of effort and energy, but... It's maintained and it's enabled us to be the world's largest podcast by volume because we've got 262 episodes out at the moment, having only gone for two and a half years. And that's kind of where it started. And it's just been a massively great trajectory since. We had you on for episode 40. I was actually talking about you a couple of days ago, saying it was an interesting show because we interviewed you. And then somehow you did a Jedi mind meld or mind trick on us. And you started interviewing us on our own show. And we're like, "What's, what's going on here? But no, it's just been fantastic. It's one of the best enthusiast communities I've ever been involved in in a prior life. I was involved in the car scene, the tuning scene. I worked for car magazines. I also DJed professionally at music festivals, events, and the music scene, dance scene, the car scene. They're so nippy underneath the, the, the top layer. It looks friendly, but underneath, you know, everyone's bitching and backbiting. The watch scene doesn't matter if you've got a G Shock or a 5711, people are so welcoming. On the most part, it's just fantastic. And that's why I've stuck at it. And here we are two and a half years down the road. Thank you for telling the story. That's fantastic. And it's so nice that you had this small community um, and that you wanted to amplify the voice of that small community because you were having fun with your friends. And what I try to talk to a lot of brands about is that for a lot of watch hobbyists, and that's what I'm calling us now is hobbyists. I don't like mm -hmm. collectors or enthusiasts. It's a little bit vague. Hobbyists. And what is a hobbyist? And you know this coming from the car world. It's someone that you spend money on your hobby. If you're making money on your hobby, it's your job. And there's a few people whose job is watches. But most mm -hmm. people, when they're into watches, it's a hobby. Because it takes up your time and it takes your money. That's just what I, hobbies are. You do them because they make you happy. Is that not what a wife has as well? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to walk into that trap, but you probably have some supporters there. Okay. Um, there is, you know, a, a distinct happiness that comes with it, like I said. And brands need to understand that for a lot of people, that's what draws them to it. If it wasn't for the fun socializing and the uh, the friendship, it might not be as fun to 
uh, be into watches. And so, you know, they need to, they need to cater to that behavior a little bit more. And they're thinking it's all about, you know, feeling like a big shot going to boutique. Well, for hobbyists, a lot of that backfires, right? All that stuff that's, that's meant to like, you know, playing mind tricks on the consumer. We reject a lot of that, don't we? We think, well, personally, can't speak for everybody, but personally, I look behind the scenes now and I say, okay, if I'm going to the big fancy boutique where you're getting the champagne and you're being razzle-dazzled, then a lot of the money I'm spending in this timepiece that's going to end up on my wrist, a lot of that money is just blown away. Whereas maybe the people that appreciate the marketing and the spectacle of it all, they don't mind all that kind of stuff. But I, I look for value. And I think being involved more and more in the scene in the industry now, because obviously it's transcended across that way due to the podcast, I see it both ways. But uh, no, there's nothing I can put my finger on and say that I don't like about the watch scene, the watch industry, the community, the hobbyist or the enthusiast side of things. I think it's fantastic all around. Now, I think one of the things you said that was very interesting, and again, I love I love to talk about consumer behavior because I think other people looking in to watches, they don't really quite get it. They don't understand the nuances, how tastes can differ. And, and I try to explain to people there's a lot of different ways of becoming a watch buyer, right? It's not just because you're like a watch nerd. There's a lot of different things that could happen that make you decide, I want to buy an expensive watch. You, like me, appreciated for the item and when you buy something for the item, you want as much of your money as possible go into a good watch. You want money to go into original parts and good engineering and testing and materials and stuff like that. Some consumers aren't as concerned about that. But when you really know a product, whether it be bicycles or musical instruments or cars, that tends to be where enthusiasts want to spend their money. And because of that, there are a lot of watches out there that cater to those needs. So it's, it's actually a great time to be a consumer like us, even though not all watches um, that we, we would like we can afford, uh, there's definitely a lot out there that's, you know, arguably affordable, but that is made for people like us. You agree, disagree? Totally. Yeah. It's uh, across the board. Some of my favorite watches, you know, they talk about the bell curve of getting into watches. Rolex is the best thing in the world. And then it dips down and it's like Grand Seiko, Patex, JLC, and then it kind of comes back up the other side and it's like, oh, Rolex actually aren't that bad. You know, they kind of are okay. <laughs> it's it's right across the board. Some of my favorite watches, and I've said this in my show numerous times, some of my favorite watches in the last year or so have been inexpensive micro brands. Low volume, fantastic looking watches that, you know, the, the pocket price performance chart is is off the scale for them. Notice, uh, I've got the one I watch, the watch I'm wearing today. I don't know if we're going to do a wrist check in this show. I don't know if that's kind of what it's done, but I'm wearing a Notice Sector Sport, which is around about £300, about $400, $450. And it's incredible. Another watch I got in last year was from Zelos, and that's a bronze number. And that oh, one yeah. again is around about the three dollars $400 mark. Absolutely first class, stunning, under macro, stands up just as you would expect from something costing maybe three, four, five times the money. I, I want to mention something about Zelos because I remember when they started and, and we were one of the first outlets to talk about them. And what's interesting about a brand like Zelos is that th this is sort of like the 80-20 rule where like 80% of brands like that fail and a very small number actually make it. They were one of the small number that, that made it. And when I say made it, that means after the first couple watches they made, they decided to make more and then more and then more and they get more ambitious and go to different price points and things like that. So they yeah. are one of the rare success stories. But I got to tell you, we got to root for brands like that because it's it's not easy to get there. I've seen 
so many more brands come and go. And that's one of the strange <laughs> things for me now that I'm I'm about 15 years into all this is that I've seen like enough to fill a graveyard, both mm -hmm. figuratively yeah. and literally. And so it really makes me appreciate the stuff that sticks around. And Rolex is actually kind of like that for me insofar that when I first started getting to watches, I was, I had nothing but respect for Rolex, but I didn't care about it. They were not attractive to me. I was not interested in any of their products. They seemed patently boring. And only after years of comparative experience and looking at a lot of watches was I able to understand what Rolex actually does well and appreciate it for what it is. Um, but it took, you know, it took a lot of experience uh, to get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You had something that worked, had function, form, maybe not beautiful, but it had a nature to it that worked for the aesthetic of being a tool watch. And I was the same. When I got my first, my introductory to luxury watches was buying a secondhand Rolex piece that turned out to be not as described. Uh, and if it, if it had been, this is a story I've told, and if people have heard my podcast, they may have heard this one before. I got to an age where I had the house, I had the car, I had the motorcycle. And I thought, what is the next thing that a man usually buys? What's the next trophy or trinket that I would be buying myself? And I watched Rock, a rocket ship. Oh, okay. Uh, no, no, unfortunately, I don't <laughs> own Tesla. I'd love to do that. I didn't invent PayPal. But I thought, what will I do? And I spoke to the girlfriend at the time and I said, I'm thinking of getting a watch, thinking of getting a Rolex. I knew nothing about watches and I don't claim to know a lot just now because I'm learning every day. And the more you learn, the more you realize you know nothing. Oh, yeah. My father uh, wasn't, a rich per wasn't a rich person. Our family wasn't rich by any stretch of imagination. Therefore, he always loved the fact that in the Bond movies, original Bond movie, Sean Connery was wearing a Rolex and a Rolex was a thing he sort of aspired to. Never managed to get there before he passed away. And I got to an age, as I say, where I had a little bit of cash and I thought, I'll get a Rolex watch. Went and bought a GMT Master locally in Glasgow from a dealer. Uh, got it at a price which obviously now looks insignificant compared to what they're going for at the moment. But it was a 1999 GMT Master. It was not the Master 2. And the year of manufacture, that was the year that my dad passed. So I thought that was um, quite fitting. Uh, bought that. Salesperson gave me limited information I knew nothing about it. I didn't know about an automatic, didn't know about manual wind. The only thing I knew to ask was, does it have box and papers? Because a friend told me to ask that question. I didn't know what it meant. I just thought it sounded like I knew what I was talking about, you know? So I asked the like, question. Did you want it in a Ziploc bag, sir? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, how long does the battery last in this thing? So got the watch, got it home, and immediately it was running about a minute fast. Now, I didn't know about regulation or magnetism or anything it could have been. But that's what made me jump onto the internet. And that's where I started researching. Because of my background with cars and technology, I used to run a computer shop doing repairs and such like. I like to get into the nitty gritty only if I need to. When I was a kid, I always wanted to know how things worked. As I got to become an adult, I realized if it works, you don't really need to know what's going on under the covers unless something goes awry. Went on the internet, found the Rolex forum, found different Wait, places. Were you trying to fix your own watch? Is that it? No, no. And I wanted to understand potentially what was oh, wrong with okay. it. Okay, because I if I was going to go and get it repaired, well, not repaired, returned under warranty, I wanted to have a leg to stand on when I spoke to the salesperson. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, they obviously knew more than I did. So did a bit of research, found out those things, but I just got the feeling in my head, if I'm buying this and I'm spending multiple thousands, to which a person that's never bought a lottery watch, that is huge. I had gone from worrying about spending $75 on a Vestal plastic quartz watch a couple of years prior to now spending four and a half, four... 4,700 UK pounds 
on this second-hand 20-odd-year-old watch. I wanted it to work. So I decided I would return it after having done all this research. Uh, so I did. I returned it and I started looking for another one. I hadn't been put off, but thanks to the Rolex forum, a blog to watch, all the other online places that you can learn and get pertinent information, I started to get a bit of momentum in my brain. I wanted to learn more, and that whole thirst for knowledge kicked in. Ended up buying my second piece, which was a Rolex GMT Master II, the LN edition, 2012. And from there, managed to get my hands by accident on a Batman, which in 2017 was a very rare feat. And there was usually a year's waiting list, but I got a call. Thanks to basically phoning around when I was looking for that second watch, somebody accidentally put me on the waiting list for a Batman. And a couple of, I think it was three weeks later or something, or maybe a month or so later, I get a phone call from the AD. Hello there, sir. Your Batman has come in. And my reply to that was, I never asked for a Batman. What are you talking about? Oh, your name's on this list. We phoned through 20 people and people aren't answering, haven't got back to us, do not have the funds available. Do you want it or do you want us just to phone the next person? So immediately I cancelled my plans, obviously, jumped in the car, straight down to the AD and bought this Batman. And then having put that in my wrist on the Friday, the following Tuesday, which was, what, four or five days later, I was on a plane to my first ever Baselworld. And that was my introduction to watches. See, it's interesting because people who get into it at different times have different things accessible to them. When I got into watches, so much of what you mentioned was not available to me. Some was, some wasn't. I got into watches when I was in college and, um, you know, poor like most college kids are. Like for me, spending like one or $200 on a watch was a lot. So most of the stuff I was into was so out of the realm of affordability. But as a student, you will at least believe that you will make more money in the future, at least at the time. That's what was, was you were led to believe. Um, and eventually I was able to buy some of that stuff. But for me, I had to use eBay to study up on stuff. And for me, it was this voracious appetite to figure out what's the best thing that my paltry amount of money can afford. And mm-hmm. so I had to do a very similar uh, type of, of study path where I was going out there and looking at the time, which was forums um, and things like that. It was it was a lot harder to find information, but there was still a lot of stuff out there, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it was a really matter of just discovering brands that you, you really would never know their name unless you saw some stranger on a weird, you know, hobbyist website mentioned it. Like there was no marketing anywhere. There was no stores you could go in to see any of the stuff. Like I was so mesmerized by the fact that, that there was this ultra cool stuff that was not for sale within like 500 miles of where I lived. Because especially growing up in, in Los Angeles, you sort of have the idea that anything that's anything is something that you can drive to and buy. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And I was just sort of in awe that was like, so it's not in the city or the state or even this country? What is this thing? Yeah, it's, it is a different world. And peeling back the layers of the onion, even to this day, nearly five years into the hobby, I'm finding je- hidden gems all over the place because there is just such so many things out there today. But then you can look back hundreds of years. That's the thing that gets me. These little mechanical wonders on the wrist have been in production for hundreds of years. Cars haven't been around for hundreds of years. And it's something that seems to be impervious to the world. You know, you can have a financial collapse, you can have a housing collapse, you can have COVID hit, and nothing seems to attack this industry. It's just incredible. It's like a cockroach <laughs> of the universe. It just it cannot die. It's funny. You're, you're right. The pandemic should have utterly destroyed it. That, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Look the at pandemic the price of oil. Is, Barrels of oil. Look at the price last year. And watches you, kept going. 
I, you're right. Certain watches, yeah. I'm just saying the fact that the watch industry does well is for reasons that are far departed from them being devices to tell the time. Correct. So the watch industry is like this curiosity in the industrialized world as something which is manufactured. There's very few things I've ever come across that there's much time and effort that go into them with as little actual real world demands on performance. Like people put a huge amount of effort into like, you know, fancy boats and and yachts and things like that. But like those still need to keep people alive and perform well as a boat. Like watches just sort of are supposed to sit there and look pretty. And yet we like obsess over them. Like it's, it's one of those things that like forces us to accept that we don't live in a rational world and that's comforting somehow. I still can't rationalize how this all functions, but my primate brain just likes shiny things occasionally. And I suppose being a man, it's almost frowned upon to wear garish jewelry. We're not in Miami in the 80s, so you know it's not Miami Vice and whatnot. But as I've said before, it's an accolade to buy a watch. It's a celebration. It's a rite of passage. It's an achievement, an award. It's a trophy. And men really do not do that. Women have got nice fancy bags. They've got jewelry. They've got rings, necklaces, bracelets. A watch is kind of the only thing guys can gravitate towards apart from a wedding ring. And if we can change the watch out, that's our little fashion accessory that we can play with and no one's going to give us a hard time about it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you, I'm sure you've seen the article, but a couple of years ago, I, really, I literally wrote an article that said, watches make the best trophies. Yes, <laughs> yes, I did actually see that one. Yeah, so it's, um, it, it's, it's a really important conclusion to come to. Um, now, here's, a, here's an interesting question. Um, I'm in this, I guess, 20 years longer than you in terms of being a collector. Uh, it's got nothing to do with accomplishment. It's just a longer period of time. I've seen more stuff. What do you want to know that you, you would ask a more mature collector, myself, other people? Like, there's certain things about the sort of emotional journey that other people have gone through. That's what I find interesting about this. While every watch hobbyist journey is unique, there's a lot of commonalities and a lot of similar phases that people go through. Um, and so someone who has more, uh, if someone saw your behavior and it was more, you know, had more maturity than you in this, we might be able to say, you're going to do this and you're going to do this next and then you're going to feel this way. And this is ultimately where we're going to go to. So like, what would you ask a, a more, a, you know, a more mature experienced collector? Probably nothing I haven't already asked. Although okay. everything changes day by day. For instance, would be if I have a guest on my podcast, depending who they are, what they talk about and their life experiences can dictate how I take the conversation and what questions I'll ask of them. And that could be a historical question of how did you get into watches? Tell me about you know the ethos behind your collecting philosophy. Why have you gone down this route versus that route? And everyone has got a slightly different take on it, which you'll obviously know, having spoken to hundreds if not thousands of people about the same things, that everyone's got... It's the same story with different players, different characters and different times. And I don't think there would be a single question that I'd want to ask someone that I already haven't because I've spoken with Jean-Claude Biver, I've spoken with yourself, I've spoken with Brian Duffy, Head of Watches of Switzerland Group, and I've spoken to local friends who maybe have been in the hobby for even less time than I have. And there is no one question, you know, it's just tell me your origin story about watches and every single one is unique and everyone is entertaining and interesting. See, that's what I'm interested in. It's not the origin story, but the destination story. You're right. People start similarly and, and things like that. But I think the destination, like where does it ultimately lead? 
you know, you you find nicer and nicer watches, rare and rare things, you know, things that are better and better looking. You 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 slowly edge closer to that perfection you're seeking. What do people actually end up finding? What is the end game of watch collecting? And uh, you know, it's it's a philosophical question. I don't think there is one. Back with the, the car stuff, when I said I was involved with car magazines, this was around about the time the Fast and the Furious came out. Okay. And prior to that, I'd, I'd been involved in cars and I'd started Scotland's first ever car website to do with enthusiast performance tuning, modifications and stereo equipment. And then Scottish Watches is Scotland's first watch website to do exactly the same thing two decades down the road. But back then, it was similar. People would spend an inordinate amount of their own time, energy and cash getting what they wanted and if a manufacturer didn't create something specifically that fell within that realm they would modify it tinker with it upgrade it and hot rod it yeah and once they got to the pinnacle of that vehicle what would generally happen is they would go looking for a magazine photo shoot a cover car shoot and once that was done they were spent and they would get rid of the car probably losing tens of thousands in the process and they would move on to the next thing. And it would yeah. be a continual juggernaut of change and change and change. And I see that in the, the all industries to do with the hobbyists, especially males, because there's always something else they want to attain. They always want to climb that ladder. And with watches, once you get your grill piece, there's another grill piece, you know? It, okay, it's so hear me moving out. forward. Hear, hear me out. I, I actually ask this question out of personal fear because I, I, I tend to think a lot about things. And... I like to do things that are, are genuine. I like to think that there's a genuine pleasure um, to watches and it's a great hobby and that, you know, if more people discovered, they'd be happy. I'm sort of mm-hmm. like an evangelist for this as though it was like a religion. It's like, come join our religion. It'll make you happy as long as you yeah. can stomach buying a few watches every once in a while. Like there's real joy and friendship in it. You know, come come hang out with us weirdos. Um, that's why I sort of do what I do. But I I, I sometimes worry that, you know, there might be a thing, a real thing that like after 25 years, you've just seen all the watches that one person can see and you just put it behind you and you move on to some next hobby. I'm not saying that's real, but I've seen it happen in other hobbies, for example. And, you know, cars for sure not. I just don't think anybody lives long enough to drive all the cars they want to drive. There's just too many out there. And maybe it's like that for watches. Maybe no one's rich enough or lives long enough to truly experience all the watches before they get tired of it. And I have met some people that are crazy, crazy wealthy. Do you want to know what I've seen as being um, maybe not a real end game, but sort of a weird place that a lot of guys end up? Okay, hit me with it. So there are there are people, um, and they're fortunate to be these people, but they have enough money to essentially sample everything they want, right? So, so just consider that in one year, you could test out a Patek Philippe Grand Complication, a Richard Meal. Uh, a complicated along in Zona. You could buy watches with diamonds all over it. You're you're well connected and budgeted enough that there's no you know financial barrier to sampling a lot. And what they do is they get so excited, they buy way too many nice watches way too fast, and they burn out. And then they mm-hmm. feel like they've seen everything. They've also had to deal with a bunch of like unpleasant salespeople, service people, brand people people trying to get a lot of money for them. Think of all the service headaches and things like that. So at some point, like they still like watches, but they seem really, really jaded. And they kind of did themselves. It's sort of like OD, yeah. if you know what I mean. You, know, you see what I'm saying? But like I have seen various manifestations of that over time. It's almost spoiled brat syndrome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I suppose if money is no object, 
you could do that, but those types of people, I I would assume, would rattle through anything in quick succession. Supercars oh, yeah. go through. Oh yeah. So that's not limited to the watch world. I would say everything changes. I haven't only been in for five years or just under. There's things on a daily basis that pop up, and we're not talking massive, vast amounts of money here. Um, a smaller micro brand we deal with. Uh, let me think. The guy at Kelshoot from Stratton, and he has okay. got a secondary nice company. Yeah, he's a great guy, very funny. Had him on the show, and he's going to hate me because I can't remember the name of his second brand, which is even less expensive. Now I'm yeah. too. And these guys are using lab. Was it uh, Labradorite? meteorite, uh, all kinds of really interesting compounds for their dial material. And we're talking $400 watches, $500 watches that you look at it and the way the light hits it and the way they have acid etched and nitrate etched, all these different components, they look fantastic and I'd never seen anything like it. Another person we speak to all the time, now a very close personal friend of mine, is James Thompson, Black Badger who collaborates with everyone from uh, Linda Verdlin through yeah. to Zenith. We, I had Ramsey. him on the show. We haven't published it yet, but we we got a show with him. Well, there you go. You know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. So when you've got these crazy mad scientists doing stuff at not hundreds of thousands of dollars, but maybe not attainable. Some of the stuff is not attainable because we're still talking 50 grand plus. But from $500 to maybe ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, it's amazing what you can get. And then you've got yeah. other brands. Maybe a couple of years ago, Gorilla came out with a, a Wandering Hours complication that was fairly yeah, inexpensive. Yeah, I got one of those. Really nice. You know what I mean? It's, it's not limited. And there's always somebody bringing out something else. Guy we spoke to just a couple of weeks ago there, Studio Underdog. He used to work for various different companies doing design, struck out on his own. And he created a watch you probably know with a watermelon design dial on it. Watermelon design dial? You've not seen that one? I don't think I've seen that one. Oh, it kicked off big on Instagram a good few months ago. We've got one in to have a look at. Sounds stupid, but until you see it, it doesn't make that little physical connection in your brain. All right, right. so what's what's the name of this thing? I want to see it now. Studio Underdog. If you Google Studio Underdog Watermelon. (laughs) Okay, so it has watermelon in the name. Yeah. I probably seen it. I just didn't, you know, I didn't know what it was called. Oh, these things. Yes, I've seen these. That's how a brilliant, inexpensive... Summer, throw on your wristwatch when you're wearing some Larry colors. It's it's very it's very much looks like it's like from like Christopher Ward's design laboratory. It, uh, yeah, yeah, the text on it is a little bit like that. But and then there's the docs. I recently brought out a whole slew of different colors with their forged carbons. Previous to that, they had the, the cool colors with their steel collection. Rolex last year decided to go nuts with their their pastel colors. Everything changes all the time, so I don't think it's ever going to stay the same, and I don't think people will get bored and we'll just get to the end of watches. If we're going to get to the end of them, we would have hundreds of years ago. When when I've talked to some of those individuals, I've acted in the role of the therapist to be like, no, come on, there's still great watches out there. You'll see, you'll see. So mm-hmm. that's my role when I'm doing that. I just, look, my life would be awkward to say the least if I suddenly got bored of watches. It hasn't happened yet, and I'm not saying it will, but it's a legitimate concern for someone who's literally dedic- dedicated the majority of their adult life's career to a subject matter. I think you'll be okay. I would be more scared if you were involved in cars because I've seen the opposite in the car industry over the last 20 years where every car almost looks the same now. They oh. are safety boxes designed with uh, low drag coefficients and miles per gallon at, at the peak. 
So everything kind of looks boxy in the same for focus, looks like the Civic, that looks like the whatever. And then now everything's going electric. So you're getting rid of the, the mechanical nature, which is what wristwatches appeal to me about because it's a mechanical engine on the wrist. You so know I feel... I just got to say something about the car thing because you, you used to do that and I like cars myself. I feel like being into cars right now is like being into like nice horses circa like 1880. Like it's not the complete end, but like, you know, it's like it's like mass horse use is going to go down on the horizon. Like driver, driver, you know, driven cars is going to be a weird anom- anomaly moving forward, and it's and it's eventually going to be something that like hobbyists do on private tracks. Try getting a car with a manual transmission, stick shift these days. You can't even buy them. Rare, and that's a go. different driving experience. I mean, that's like that's what they say is real driving. Especially if you're racing, there's you can't you can't race in an automatic. That doesn't even make sense. No, I mean I got thankfully I got the opportunity while I was still involved with cars to test drive one of the first Teslas that came out. Not the first oh, Tesla, yeah, but Roadster. one of the... It, no, it wasn't the Roadster. It was one of the first... Uh, the one of the ones that first came out with ludicrous mode. And it just oh, so that, happened. So, so, so it was, I guess, the second one. It was the uh, the S-series, I guess it was. Uh, P90DL, maybe? Something like that? Yeah, that uh, was. We, I think that's what they call the engine. It was the, uh, the S... Yeah. I know what you mean, though. I drove one of those. Yeah, yeah. Those yeah, things are fast. Really fast. Got that... 2015, maybe around about then. So a good few years back before, obviously, things get more popular. And back then, we got this thing to play with. And it was, it still is the most incredible feeling of acceleration I've ever experienced in anything from yeah. aeroplane to I'm a motorcyclist myself. The fact that everything is controlled and all you do is it's a digital on off switch, your foot goes to the floor and it decides how it's going to maneuver forward. Great feeling. But after I did it a couple of times, it got bored because it was scale electrics. It wasn't me doing anything at all. I was just pointing a straight line and pressing a button. And it yeah. takes the enjoyment factor out. It was the quartz watch of cars. So. <laughs> but I'm just saying, we're, the, we're at the end of driver's driving. We're going to have yeah. a, you know, autonomous cars. that Johnny cabs be, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And, and we know this is coming. We, we, the thing that I worry about is that I think that when people have to learn driving as a skill, it makes them just better at being humans in the world. Like they, they get a lot of other skills when it comes to living. I wonder what humanity is going to lose when your average citizen doesn't have driving as one of their skills. Have you ever seen the Pixar film Wall-E? <laughs> oh, okay. I guess that's where we're going with this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's kind of been the COVID year. Most people just sitting there with food being delivered to their mouths. Oh. But, yeah, it's, that, I think that's one of the reasons that I like motorcycles. I've moved away from cars. I think I saw the writing in the wall when the Nissan GTR came out versus the R34 and it was only came in automatic and it did pretty much everything for you. My yeah. favorite uh, car that I had previous to what I've got just next, I've got a kind of, it's a nice car, but it's not ridiculous. The previous one I had was a Toyota MR2 Turbo GTS Revision 3. And oh, like, you had a little MR2, cute. That was, that was nice. It was about 280 horsepower and I oh, spent... Wow shitloads on it probably thirty thousand dollars equivalent really upgrading it changing stuff new turbos uh manifolds headers new ignition system piggyback ecus nitrous oxide injection uh, different intercoolers what was wrong with the original ignition system like why do you have to replace that uh because the boost pressures were increased so you needed a better spark 
to because you, especially with the nitrous as well, you had to change around a lot of different uh, gradings. You had nitrous in there. <laughs> I went to town. Told you, I was working for a car magazine to do a modified <laughs> cars. A couple of years after the Fast and Furious came out, this was when this stuff was on fire. Um, but yeah, and I was going to equate something there to hobbies. I'm guessing in Scotland, if you speed, the punishment is very lenient. Uh, no, no. Uh, really? You will get points, you accumulate points, you lose your license, and you get fines, and then you get jail time. So where are you using your nitrous boost? When the police aren't around. Okay. I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, why it th- you, 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 had to, you had to use, you can't just build that in. It's not like the fire extinguisher that just looks, looks pretty. Like, you need to use the nitrous from time to time. No, it was legit. It was an, uh, an official kit plumbed in through the ECU system and stuff like that and it had the, the little light up NOS button as well. Didn't have it in the steering wheel, it wasn't quite Who that ended cool. up, I'm sure you said you sold it, right? Uh, it went to ruin, unfortunately. It got to oh. an age because this is a this was a 1994 car okay. brought over to Scotland. In Scotland we have got the harshest road salts known to man. It is as corrosive as oh. hell and they spray it in the ground because it's cheap and effective. But that's why cars in Scotland don't last more than about five years. They just rot. I didn't realize that. And this car came across completely not under sealed whatsoever because in Japan, they're clever and they don't dick around with stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. it started to ruin. Uh, things started to go wrong. So I got rid of that. But I like the mid-engines layout and all the rest of it. So I changed from the MR2 to a Boxster. And from the Boxster, I've now got a Cayman S. So I've still got that kind of sporty feel but without having to modify and do things to uh, and it's German reliability. So there we go. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch Store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. Buy your wristwatches elsewhere and celebrate the watch collecting hobby with high quality original products at the Blog to Watch Store. Right now, the Blog to Watch Store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at the Blog to Watch. Made from 100% premium cotton, our soft fitted t-shirts are stylish, fun, and models like our iconic diver dial even have a glow in the dark face. The Blog to Watch Store carries bespoke yet affordable products, which the Blog to Watch editorial team wanted for themselves as the first customers. Visit the website to see what is available right now, and we ship internationally with new products coming all the time. Check it out by logging on to store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. And so have you started to modify watches? Is that even an area you want to broach? Because that's complicated. Uh, My fingers are too big to get inside the movements, so I can't really do much. Like have specialists do it, you know what I mean? Like there's the Seiko modding community. Like I, I... Kudos to those people. It's it's a creative endeavor. It's hard to do. Watch modding, the best I have done is to change the straps. I have a massive collection of aftermarket straps. When I got my Batman, the first thing I did was buy an Everest strap for a white leather, which looks pretty cool. Then mm. I got the colored ones. But then I've reverted back to just wearing normal stuff. Um, but no, not modified my watches. I like seeing companies coming out with new things there's a, a company you've probably heard of you may have worked with in the past Orage and right. they're constantly creating new stuff they bubble under they're not very well known and we're trying to fly the flag for them because they're cool guys they've got this great <laughs> sense of humour just like us and they've designed their own movements including a micro rotor movement they've got uh, a tourbillon that they've just designed that's that's out in watches now it's on people's wrists I like seeing companies like that coming up with new stuff. Zenith, when they were bringing out the Inventor, I put my money down as a deposit on a Zenith Inventor. 
and it never materialized. But I loved the technology. I loved how they had modified everything. You know, silicon escapement, massively accurate. What was it like half a second a day it was going to be? Or even screen yeah, drive. That's rare, actually. The, the watches never came out. Like that's an, I, They usually pump something out. Like That's actually impressed that they never figured something out. It really disappeared. I mean, I was, I'd paid a deposit and it came to, I think, a year or two years after paying the money. And I just went back to my AD and says, listen, I've heard nothing. No, it's not your guys at fault, obviously, here at the AD, but I put this money down, getting told within six months I'd have a watch. We're, we're approaching yeah. a couple of years. Just give me my money back. And I think the Zenith quietly pushed that to the side and just stopped talking about it because it was the last ever Basel World 2019 they had the Zenith high frequency event where they were really shouting about it and they had all these, they had Eve, Swiss Beats was DJing at it, Julian was on stage, Watch Anish was there, Waco was there. Every, you were, that was where I met you actually at that Basel World for the first time. Yeah. And then suddenly complete and utter silence, which is a real shame because the technology was good. But I think Frédéric Constant, they came out with something quite recently that's not the same, but it's quite similar. Well, here's my understanding of what happened with it. Yes, Frederic Constant has a high-frequency uh, silicon escapement, but mm-hmm. but the thing is, a lot of the stuff that um, LVMH was trying to do is was not silicon. Um, here's here's where my understand my understanding of the two primary engineering problems that they couldn't overcome. Uh, one problem, which is partially the most significant, is they can get the watch to work in a resting position pretty well, but they were never able to figure out any type of effective shock absorption system for people just wearing it, especially in the small space that they have. So it was just so fragile when it came to movement. Um, Another thing is they never were able to produce the parts fast enough, like in a large enough volume to make it economically viable. LVMH had put huge money into technology, like they're some type of carbon hybrid um, may, you know, uh, uh, hairspring that wasn't that wasn't silicon, but was some other special thing. It was. You remember they did the isochrone or whatever that yeah, the thing the isograph, was? and then they pulled it back. Yeah, because they couldn't do that. That was they showed me. I mean, I, I had a technical demonstration with them. They explained to me everything, um, and it was this new material, and they were going to make little sheets of it and cut it up, and it was supposed to be something that they could cut faster, and it was a more efficient industrial material than silicon. Um, but they just had to work out some of the kinks and industrializing, and I guess they could never overcome it. They probably could have if they wanted to put more money in there. But remember, with with Biver essentially leaving, he was he was the champion of R and D. He was the yeah. one that pushed so much for it. No other manager could ever stomach it because they didn't. They never had his sense of enthusiasm for the outcome. They were just worried about their jobs and losing money. So mm-hmm. with Biver out, my guess is that there was no one pushing hard for there to be robust R and D, and it was just seen as a money-losing division. Well, what you said there about Bouvier leaving is how I feel about GLC at the moment. It's as if they've just kind of decided to play it safe. Um, had the opportunity just before COVID hit to be invited across uh, with Adrian from Bark and Jack. He was going to do some video, asked me if I could come along accompany him, help him with some B-roll, and I got to sit down with him. And I asked the question, I said, that I'm new to the hobby, but I remember having seen things like the Amvox 2, and the massive compressor and all these weird and wonderful brilliant watches that still look good today but you don't seem to do that and the guy turned around and said uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name but he ran the museum and he basically said well you know to be fair we're known as the watchmakers watchmaker and heritage is what we're steeped in we're just going to stick to the tried and tested because that's what people want and I thought that's a real shame because those Amvoxes and all the rest of it I love them I mean who is he to say that's what people want 
clearly you want something else. You just, you know, you just canceled his logic. Mm. Yes. It's just like you said, you know, people want to make sure they've got a job tomorrow. And that means sticking to the same old, same old. Look, there is a thing where these brands are able to operate, I I think, much more effectively under private ownership versus corporate ownership. Mm. I don't want to needlessly insult anyone out there, but the reality is, is that under private ownership, these brands can make decisions about what to do. They don't have to get complicated things approved. There isn't a large entity siphoning off profits. They can reinvest a lot more into marketing and R&D, which is just an economic fact. Yeah. So I just don't have a lot of faith in the fact that corporations owning such a large amount of these luxury brands is good for the consumer. I mean, I guess it's good for investors, but I... I don't see any other upsides to it. I really don't. I see it as being materially limiting an industry that needs to be innovating a lot more and be a lot more exciting, especially these days. And in the, it's not like the corporations are making that much money. I mean, uh, I mean, Caring is, pu- is publicly announced that it's more than happy to sell off Ulysses Nardin and Gerard Perigot for, mm-hmm. for, I guess, the right amount of money. Like, and I was meeting with people from both of those brands like shortly after that announcement. Like, it's an awkward time to be there. You know what I mean? Those are two brands that I really like. I get my first opportunity to handle a listener Dan Blast um, a couple of months back there. Well, you should you should put in an offer. Maybe get a, a you know a group a group of people together. Buy buy uh, buy Gerard Perigot. Uh, well, Dave Sharp, <laughs> or the, the third wheel I was telling you about, because we went from yeah. a duo to a trio, he is a massive advocate for GP. Uh, he's okay. got a Laureato and a few other things. Yeah, there's loads of nice brands out there. And those do are, a Kickstarter campaign to buy. Do a Kickstarter to buy, to buy UN. That, big that would be a great publicity campaign. That would be a good one. But like you say there, when a conglomerate ends up owning a company, I can't really think offhand in any industry where somebody has come in with big cash and big pockets and taken an independent under the umbrella and then it has flourished. It always seems to go the opposite way. Every single structure. time. Yeah. So. Every single time. Look, the corporate corporations buy things of value because they want profit. Corporations are hungry for profit. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you start a company, you're not thinking about profit. You're thinking about like reason for existence. And so yeah. the natural reason that a corporation owns a company is antithetical to the notion of innovation. It Correct. just says like, oh, you're already making money? I want you to make that money for me. Boom. That's it. That's why they buy. Very true. Yeah. Unless there's like technology that they need or something like that. I mean, one of the most interesting stories about uh, corporate acquisitions ever is Disney's acquisition of Pixar, which is a very long story. Um, but make a long story short, Pixar was able to negotiate it where they had creative control. And they, ha- they were able to make a lot of their own decisions. Disney did a lot of distribution, was able to make money off of that. But Pixar was more or less able to do um, what they want to do. And Disney, I'm sorry, for the most part, can't make a good movie to save its life right now. Other mm-hmm. than, you know, maybe some people it owns. But like a Disney movie being good, like that's that's that seems to be real heritage at this point. When did Disney take over the Star Wars Enterprise? Recently, to mix a couple when they, of metaphors. When um, they bought the Lucas and all that. Is that when it all started to go pear-shaped? Because I'm no, not into Star Wars no. at all, but it seems recently they were just flogging them out on a yearly basis and really diluted the enthusiasm that that's, the fan base so that's had. That's the Disney way. So Disney has done that with pretty much every property that Disney owns, including right, okay. all the Disney properties. So I think it was maybe Bob Iger 
he was one of the former CEOs that, and look, the thing is, it made their investors a crap load of money. They made huge amounts of money, but he did it by, uh, you know, being very business-minded. Milking the cow, really going crazy with merchandising. A lot of the resorts, hotels, nothing that you would consider would be particularly interesting. You know, Disney's a creative company. He turned it into a a money-making company that made money off of selling experiences. And so they sell a package where you watch a movie and you buy the merchandise and you go to the theme park and have the experience and your kids grow up seeing that so many times that they watch the sequels and then they do the same thing with their kids. Like it's a whole note. It's a, it's a whole like consumer merchandising and, and grooming, you know, concept. It's just, it's, it's all, it's all business. It's all like business through math and science. But that's been the way since the early eighties when the lunch boxes came out to coincide with like He-Man, Masters of the Universe, <sighs> or Transformers was designed to sell the toys. Okay, but at the time that yes, that was going on in the eighties, but at the time it was it was novel because it wasn't really happening. It ended up it ended up being good for kids because an enormous amount of R and D went into children's products, so much hmm. so that they're better than they oh the things that are coming out today. Yeah, I'd the, agree the, with that. the professional agencies and writers and art directors that put together these shows and these scripts and the writing and the merchandising it is worlds better back then because it was more professional than the crap we're getting today. That's like this. That's why the stuff when we were kids is like, wow, that's actually better than the stuff the kids had. It wasn't supposed to be that way. The trajectory mm-hmm. that we were on when we were growing up was like toys are getting better and more advanced and more awesome every single year until mm-hmm. until they stopped. And now the toys we have end up being on the rest. Yeah. But I'm just saying I feel bad for kids today because they have a bunch of disposable, like, low production value junk. I Most feel sorry it. for kids today because I don't have kids myself. I don't know what your family circumstances I, I are like. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old. So I, basically he gets, he gets a curated selection of the toys I choose for him. Right, good. Because the way I see it with my friends is uh, the toy that kids have is an iPad. Oh, no screens, no screens for him. I mean, sometimes some cartoons on the TV, no iPad, none of that stuff. And honestly, you know what? Now I consider the absolute worst poison, like YouTube. Like the, this is this is the this is sort of a, a metaphor I use, and maybe I'm wrong, but this is the metaphor. Giving a kid unbridled access to the internet, which can be as simple as YouTube, is like taking like a seven-year-old and just dropping them in like the middle of Detroit at like two in the morning. It's the exact same thing. Like they could be okay. But it's so easy for something bad to happen to them, it's negligent for them to be alone here. Mm, yeah, I would agree. The way I see it with my friends is to anything for a, a happy, quiet, peaceful life. Therefore, there's an iPad, go have fun and be quiet. Uh, but going back to Disney, I think the only thing I could say that Disney have done right, and it may be a happy accident or who's involved, is the Mandalorian. Well, yeah, which is good. Uh, look, the thing is this. They do make mistakes once in a while, and there and, and there are some great people that work at Disney. They can do it. They just choose <laughs> not to. So the Mandalorian is like low stakes. It's supposed to be a serial. We want it to be, you know, let's make it good. Netflix did a bunch of good stuff. So literally Disney's like, let's do what those other guys did by making a watchable thing. I agree. That was good. So they can do it all the minds are there all the intellectual properties there all the canon is there as they call it they just don't prioritize it no it's a money-making machine it's a business yeah and and we have that in the watch industry and um you know there are brands that do that uh some brands do it more often than not some brands only entirely do it but you know when you're a hobbyist you, you have to look out for the originality i mean one of the things i look at when i like look at a watch is how much of the parts are original 
you know, I mean, there's a lot of these indie brands that come out and now it's a lot better. But for a while, like, you didn't see anything original. If you don't see original design, like, I, I'm i always looking for originality out there. What, what about you? What are you looking for? I don't know what I'm looking for. I want to be surprised. It's like me walking into a clothing shop. I don't know in my head what I'm coming in to buy. I just want to flick through the racks and find something that appeals. And There's years said, of that. There's years Sorry? of that. So I, I, I was like that for most of my collecting. It's, it's actually quite recently that I start to ask myself, what is it that I really like? Mm-hmm. You're like a decade off of that. There's just, like you said, there's so much to see. Like you were talking about colors that you hadn't expected that you would like. There's, mm-hmm. you know, uh, materials and, and textures, um, finishes and things like that. You're like, I've never seen that on a watch. I've never seen that on a watch. And yeah, and that's why I'm really happy with the fact that we're all sort of material crazy right now and everyone likes playing with textures. I think it's it's going to be an exciting time moving forward. I just don't know how to get consumers to be a little bit more uh, risque in the purchases. Because think of this, you and I like these more interesting watches and brands don't make that many of them. And the question mm-hmm. is why? They're like, oh, people don't buy them. Well, maybe that's on us. If we're influencing the consumers, why don't we do a better job of telling consumers like the types of risks they could be taking? Because consumers today, for probably good economic reasons, but their mentality is very, very conservative. Like I'm sure you'll agree that more often than not, a watch enthusiast taste truly are going to be conservative. Despite what they say, they're probably going to be conservative. Actual people that are willing to take fashion chances um, are less common. I'm one of them, but I know that I'm, I'm not the norm. You're right. I mean, and what you're saying there about it is up to us to tell people on the most recent episode of the show that we put out, and I don't know when what we're doing just now is going to air, I was talking about a new release from Meistersinger. Okay. And I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's the Paragraph. And Meistersinger are a brand, if listeners don't know, that is well known for having one hand. Because if you look at a clock, a watch, a dial... You only really need to see the hour hand of where it sits. If it's sitting halfway between the one and two, you know it's half one. If it's closer to the two, it's quarter to two. So they do it with one hand. And this was a summer watch they released that doesn't look like anything else I can really put my finger on. And the black and yellow one? Uh, it, I think it's dark blue and yellow. They might do a black one as well. And, you know, it's something a bit different. And we've highlighted that in our show. Because it's not just always Rolex subs and Daytonas and APs and the new Omega. We like to shine the torch or the spotlight on as many different things as we can and that one kind of just appealed it popped up we thought yeah that looks funky that'd be good for summer it's not crazy and uh, crazy expensive and it's got a unique look and feel to it from a brand that's been around the block a little while and isn't likely to disappear in a couple of years time when you may have to get it serviced or there's a warranty claim yeah i mean i i think meister singer is is an interesting concept and it's great when you find a complication or a new a new concept like a single-handed watch. You're like, oh, I want to try that out. And yeah. maybe you ultimately love it. Maybe you don't, but like, you're glad you tried it out. Uh, I, you know, you're talking about the gorilla and the wandering hours yes. way of telling the time. It is a joy to just experiment with like just different weird ways. Even if some of them suck, it's really, you remember Tokyo Flash? No. <laughs> What's that? Tokyo Flash was this oh um, shit no i do maybe you've mentioned this before was this like the binary led watches they made a bunch of stuff they made their whole thing was these weird digital watches that you had to like learn like a right. formula to read <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. i do know what you're talking about I remember the whole that point now. was to be like in a club somewhere a restaurant someone's like sir do you have the time and you're like of course i do and you show them your watch and like it's all right here well, and then they have no idea what happens. Then you get to look yeah, like a it's, it's like looking at the flux capacitor as it energizes before you 
you jump a time. Uh, there was a watch that we get sent in recently from an independent micro brand called Nubeo, and that was it was it looked like a oh, release Nordan freak. Oh, please, X. please. Okay, hold on, hold on. I have to say this because my heart. Okay, Nubeo was an awesome Sp- Spanish brand, Spanish Swiss brand that. The owner decided to defund it during the 2009 or whatever economic crisis thing. Uh-huh. Um, the name floated around despite the creative director's best effort of a guy named Ivan Castro, who was the designer of everything. They were even funded partially by Kobe Bryant. Oh. And then it was purchased by uh, Solar Time in Hong Kong, who is a, is a company of people I like. They make things like Aviate and, and yes, Earnshaw and stuff friends. like that. Yeah. 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 And they bought Nubeo and they turned it into something that had nothing to do with the original Nubeo. Now, it's so sad because I know them. I told them, like, I am a Nubeo lover. Can we please make it like the whole thing or something like that? Like, no, we just want to do something weird with it. So they bought this name of a, of a brand I used to collect. Mm-hmm. And then they turned this thing totally different. So it's so hard for me to, he- I just like, I, I don't know what to make of the whole story. I, I just I don't know it. the history. Uh, it's, just, it's the same yeah. guys. It's Vishal and Co. And yeah, but, it's, they, but they just bought a name and completely changed it and turned it into a completely different thing. Right. It's completely I, I different. Well, forget the name, Ariel. Forget the name. I'm going to talk I about can't. the complication. Yeah. Well, okay. when, when people gush about Chipek, and Chipek is a name somebody bought to decide to do a Kickstarter with expensive watches. Yeah, so it does happen. But no, this thing, it's got an interesting complication where it shows you the hour on the counterweight of the, no, what is it? Yeah, the hour on the counterweight of the minute hand. So as it rotates round, once it hits the 12 o'clock position, the little disc on the counterweight clicks round and you can see the hour through the back. So it's little quirky things, weird and wonderful things that maybe don't cost as much as a grand complication. We're talking, it's not your first watch, it's not your second or third, it could be your fourth or your fifth. And it's a curiosity buy. Um, I talk on my show about curiosity purchases, weird and wonderful things that you can pick up and buy, put it in the rest, and it's a talking point. If you're, again, in a post-COVID world, in a pub, at a bar, at a red bar meet, walking down a street or whatever, you've got something that's different. And somebody has to ask how this works, and you get to tell a story. And stories is what carries this hobby forward. So I'm trying to think about what complications I think are very exotic that I could never afford. And one of the ones that I've always loved, and there's different iterations of it, but it's essentially... Uh, what I call the mechanical digital watch, like a Zeit, like a along the zone of Zeitwerk oh. would be a good example. Or the different or the, tread. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's electronic, so it's it's similar. Um, or uh, De Grisagono had the the, the Mechanico, mm-hmm. that was um, probably the most expressive take on that theme. Um, that watch was like I don't know six hundred thousand dollars or something <sighs> like that. And what it did is it had a digital style display complete with um, what it looked to be pixels, but it was actually right. all mechanical. Oh, and wow. I, I played with a few of those. It's nuts. So well, freaking complicated. Well, look at uh, Constantine Shaken with the Joker watches that came out a couple of years back. Well, this that is was, that's simple, though. That's simple. It's simple, but it's unique. Or it, at least to me, it was unique. I'd never seen anything like it. Obviously, no, so we have it. more stuff like that now, which is inexpensive and satisfying. But what I'm saying is, just up until a few years ago, the really cool stuff was like six hundred thousand oh, yeah. dollars, or yeah. or Longue, which you know that particular is like eighty thousand dollars. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. this cool thing to experiment. Eighty thousand dollars. There wasn't an eight thousand dollar option, you know, let alone a three thousand dollar option. Now there's like a several hundred dollar version. 
That's very novel. It used to be that in the inexpensive watches, there was a very finite number of movements they would use. So you'd see the same dials again and again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah. Same placement of everything. One of the first companies to try to do low-cost complications was like Azimuth, where they're trying to like do their own version of like some of the stuff from Urwerk. Do you know about those guys that were out of Singapore? I know the name. It's familiar. They did they did a watch called the Mr. Roboto. Yes, Spanish Rob's got that. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's one of them for sale somewhere that I know because I was looking at that the other week. Yeah, I have one of those. Those are really cool. They're they're really fun. That's 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 a hell of a conversation piece. But they did stuff like that. They had some watch called the spaceship. They had their own wandering hours thing. And they were all, you know, their own their own modules that they would put on like base edit movements, but they were doing they were doing that stuff and it was it was not easy. Like those workshops to make those things work at affordable prices, like that was hard. It's more doable today, but for a very long time, um, having a watch that was inexpensive and didn't tell time in a standard way was a tall order. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we speak to different brands, movement manufacturers, big and low scale volume. And it is, it's difficult. It's easy to come up with a design and throw it into SolidWorks and play around with it. But until you actually get that in the metal, and play around with it. It's very, very difficult to bring something to fruition that is different from the norm because the reason that things look and function the way they do just now is because that's the way it works. It's difficult to to play around with it, especially at a low price. So we're coming up on the end of time, and obviously as podcasters, we know that there's more conversations to come. The last topic I want to discuss really has to do with what we're doing right now, which is podcasting about watches. Where do you feel podcasts add something special to the watch media landscape that you really can't get anywhere else? It's the voice in your ear for an hour that you take with you wherever you are. So YouTube is obviously phenomenally more successful. And unfortunately, the watch industry looks at YouTube as being better than blogs, websites, newsletters, social media, and podcasts. For some reason, the visual movies on YouTube seems to shine a light on things more than anything else, which is unfortunate. Whereas with podcasting, it's like having a friend or a conversation that happens that you don't have to give your full visual attention to. So you can be at the gym, you can be walking, you can be trying to go to sleep at night, you could be on the tube commuting to work. You've got a captive audience where you can put your thoughts and ideas or questions in someone's mind for a complete hour without interruption. And that's what I love about podcasting. I, I started listening to podcasts in the middle, I think it was 20, 2004, 2005, which was only a couple of years after podcasts were first invented and loved it. And it was tech. And then obviously it moved into cars, music and watches. And the watch podcasting sphere when we first got into it, which was, wasn't that long ago, like I say, it was the start of 2019, there weren't that many players there was Spending Time podcast, which you did. There was various other, I think it was another one you actually did years and years prior to that as well. Our time. That was it, our time. But there was so many podcasts that I would find, download through Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever it's called back then, and I would listen to five episodes and it would end. And they hadn't released an episode for <laughs> XYZ number of months or years, or it was one episode, two episodes, three episodes, gap of six months, one episode, two episodes, gap of three weeks. It wasn't consistent or concise. And yeah. when we started, because like I say, I'm an idiot and I decided, yeah, two hours, two hours a week's great. That's fine. That's not like a full-time job that I'm doing for free here. We just did that. But since then, people have heard 
podcast and they've thought we'll give this a shot so it has become a bit of a murky water with so many people appearing on the landscape giving it a shot and we're new to it we're not saying guys don't do this you know we're here first we don't want anyone else to do it not at all we promote so many other brands podcast creators in the same sphere and also on youtube and other places there's a space for everybody but what i don't like to see with podcasts especially watch podcasts is people giving a shot and only doing three episodes and then disappearing which is a shame because you know what it's like to to create something, try and build it, get people to listen, and then just it's, to throw the... It's throw unavoidable. Away. In what you and I do as media professionals, we know there's a high burnout rate. Do you have any writers yeah. I've had to train and gone through that just can't put up with the, you know, they think, oh, it's so glamorous. I'm reviewing a watch. Like, it's not that easy. It takes a long time to do these things. And podcasts, you know... Anybody who starts a podcast should have like six months worth of ideas in mind. You couldn't just, most people do like, oh, this is a very low barrier to entry. I'll have like two episodes of content in mind. And then they get bored or realize like I don't suddenly get 100,000 listens and, and they get discouraged because they don't understand what it is. You know, 100%. It's called Podfade. It's a Podfade. Okay. There's a yeah, thing. It's, yeah. it's where people create a podcast and then disappear. When we started it, it was a joke and a laugh. And to be honest, I didn't even look at the stats for maybe the first month or two because I didn't want to see the numbers and feel as if we should have had more people listening. Yeah, there's no point. There's no point no looking point. at that. Uh, and, and it just worked. And you know as well as I do, behind the scenes, you put a lot of time and energy and pride into what you do because look at your articles and the word count on it. That's something we talk, we joke about. You know, you actually write novels instead of articles. <laughs> Other people don't put the same amount of attention on whereas when I do a podcast, I will spend up to eight hours editing one show. So there's all the pre-production, there's planning it, there's some guests that's taken four months to get them on a show. Pre-planning, chatting them to beforehand, rough idea of what we're going to talk about. We never script it because we like it to be fluid and to take different detours down the road. That's a conversation. It's not an interview. You're not going for a job. But there's so many hours involved in it, touching up the audio, filtering it, taking out background noises, even taking out ums, ahs, gaps and silences, things that are mistakes to create a polished product that when the person listens to it over that hour, the, f the fact they don't realize how much goes in means it's worked. If you don't hear what goes in, you know, you've actually done a good job. That's why back when it was episode 40, whatever, I was really happy to be doing those with you guys because I could tell, you know, from the outset that you knew what you were doing and that you were at least highly proficient in recording audio and editing. You know, that was that's a big part of the battle. Like people, mm -hmm. when it comes to online media, especially blogging, it's, it's a little bit different, but you can appreciate that back when I started this, there was like a lot of, oh, we'll just start a watch blog. That's a great way to make money. Not having any mm -hmm. idea of what it's like. I mean, having to have the discipline to do a podcast each week is similar to having to write articles. And I, I you know, I do both. Uh, it's a dedication. You have to, it's discipline. You have to say, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write this thing. I'm not going to stand up till I'm done. You know, you, that's part of what it's like. I was tired last night. Uh, really, really tired because it's been a big week. Um, my day job kind of thing is I run a media company. So it's everything from doing wedding photography and video through to gym videos. Uh, back when music events were a thing, used to do all that. And now it's predominantly watch stuff because that's taken over. But I had all these client things to do last night and I was dog tired. I wanted to go to my bed, but I had to stay up because the show had to go out at midnight. So I had yeah. to finish editing it and put it online. I couldn't just go to bed. So, yeah, it is. It's not a thankless task, though. I don't want to feel as if uh, it's a struggle 
or it's a burden because the comments, the feedback, every single episode, we get comments, feedback, emails, DMs from people that listen to the show to say how much they appreciate it and how different what we do is versus other people. Our take on podcasting or my own take is it's a hobby and it should be fun. And the way we approach it is from a comedic standpoint, it's satirical, it's informative, but by the end of it, you'll have a giggle and a laugh and you might have learned a thing or two. We say it's like the old Top Gear for Watches when Jeremy Clarkson was on the BBC. You didn't turn up to watch the car stuff. It was car themed. You turned up (laughs) for the banter and the jokes. And that's what we try and do twice a week. Well, everyone, this has been Ricky from Ricky and Rick's uh, Scottish Watches podcast. Uh, Ricky, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Superlative. No I will certainly have to have you back, okay? Looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Everyone, you can subscribe to uh, the Scottish Watches podcast uh, wherever you prefer to download your podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?